They have all this training that helps them be expert in their functional area, like in marketing or sales or finance or accounting, but they don't really have the skill set and the toolbox to lead people. So they end up leading people with tools that are meant to lead projects. And that doesn't work real well when you're trying to lead people that have agency and voice and want to find meaning and purpose in their work and work for organizations that have values that align with what they believe in. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey, welcome to the show. You are here with us for the end of season 14 and our final guest on season 14 here. I'd like to welcome Dr. Jennifer Nash to the show. And Jennifer is uh, definitely a friend, an aligned a member of the chorus, if not a lead singer on the human-centered leadership movement. And she has written a book called Be Human, Lead Human, How to Connect People and Performance. And uh, Jennifer is an executive advisor, author, leadership development consultant who partners with Fortune 50 executives to drive positive business outcomes and many notable clients, Boeing, Exxon, Mobile, Ford, Google, IBM, JP Morgan, Verizon, and more. And uh, she's the founder of Jennifer Nash Coaching and Consulting after a 25-year career industry in uh, and professional services. Jennifer earned her MBA from the University of Michigan and her PhD from the renowned Case Western Reserve University. And uh, you uh, serve as an executive leadership and career coach at the University of Michigan, a fellow at the Harvard McLean Institute of Coaching. And Dr. Nash's work is published in Harvard Business Review, LinkedIn, and all sorts of other places. I could go on and on, but then we wouldn't have any time to talk about Be Human, Lead Human. Dr. Jennifer Nash, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Thank you so much, David. I'm so excited to be here today. All right, Jennifer. So we're going to dive into the book, Be Human, Lead Human. But before we do, I'd like to ask you if you could take us back to your earliest memory of yourself as a leader. What might that be? You can go back as far as you like. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Well, let me think about that for a second. My earliest memory of myself as a leader I think I would have to go back to actually when I was um, three or four years old and I was dancing and my mom had put me in ballet lessons. And so I was, you know, leading the little group around the room and the choreography that we had learned. Um, I think that would be probably the earliest memory I have. Wow. That's pretty early. That's one of the earliest <laughs> I think I've ever heard is, is three or four. Wow. Yeah. And so dancing your way around and leading everybody else. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that theme is sort of like, you know, woven throughout my life. I've I've always loved to be involved in dance in some way. And so, you know, in the book, I use like a dance rubric um, to evaluate, you know, for the human leader index. So so I could bring it into my life in that way now as well, as well as being a ballroom dance competitor. Oh, competitive ballroom. All right. Uh, What what kind of dance is your your favorite has nothing to do with leadership per se, but love to know. Well, you know, that's actually interesting. So I, I like all the different styles of dance because each one of them has a different personality. So it brings out a different part of me. Um, and everyone always asks me that question, which one is your favorite? But I really don't have a favorite. I do have a few that are harder for me to, you know, learn and move and do the technique for. Um, but in terms of like, which one could I say is my favorite? I like them all for different reasons. Enjoy them all for different. That's how I feel about the work we do. So 
you know, there's, uh, there's the facilitation and the workshops and there's keynote speaking, there's writing, authoring, coaching, and people will ask the same question, which one do you like uh, best? And so often the answer is whichever one I just did that, you know, it's the, <laughs> I enjoy them all in different ways. They're all good ways to, to make a difference. So I get yeah. it. All right, cool. Yeah. Well, all right. So we've learned a little bit about you. You like dance, you led as a dancer at a very young age. Let's get into yeah human-centered leadership, or as you call it, human leadership in the book. And I'd like to start at, you know, I like to kind of set the groundwork at a definitional level. When you think about human-centered leadership, obviously the gist of this show, what is it exactly that human-centered or what you call human leadership, what is that to you? So to me, human leadership is when people prioritize people to power performance. So if leaders and managers take a look at what they're doing on a daily basis, right? Oftentimes they're going to find that they're actually leading productivity. They're actually leading process or procedure. They're leading profitability and they're leading just about everything except people. And so when I talk about human leadership, not only do I mean, let's put people first at the, at the forefront of that equation. What I mean is let's understand people from a little bit of a psychological perspective and what drives them and what motivates them and what inspires them. And when you tap into that, you have that sustainable fuel that powers performance. I love that definition. Human, human leadership, it's prioritizing people to power performance. I also love good alliteration. So you've got that in spades there. So excellent. All right. So prioritizing people to power performance. Then the, the follow-up question, and this, you know, you might have hinted at this in, in the first answer, but as you're thinking about uh, what gets in the way, you know, we call the show, it's, it's leadership without losing your soul. So it's like, what gets in the way of human-centered leadership and causes leaders to not prioritize people and power performance that way? Yeah. Well, you know, we just alluded to a couple of those things, right? I mean, when people are focused on profit and profitability, um, that really negates the human element from the equation. It's, it becomes all about the numbers. But yet it's the people that are enabling or facilitating or hindering those numbers from being delivered. So that's one thing that gets in the way. I think the focus gets in the way. I think another thing is, you know, ego. Sometimes people have pretty big egos as leaders or managers. And when that happens, the focus is on themselves rather than shifting that lens externally and focusing on other people. So they themselves, I think, are getting in the way with some of the behaviors that they exhibit and the mindset that they have and the beliefs that they hold, which actually drive those behaviors. And I think then too, I think something else that gets in the way is that people that get promoted into these leadership of people roles, whether it's a manager or you know a leader or an executive, they often tend to not have any training in how to lead people, right? They have all this training that helps them be expert in their functional area, like in marketing or sales or finance or accounting, but they don't really have the skill set and the toolbox to lead people. So they end up leading people with tools that are meant to lead projects. And that doesn't work real well when you're trying to lead people that have agency and voice and want to find meaning and purpose in their work and work for organizations that have values that align with what they believe in. Yeah, the uh, the research around how many managers feel ill-equipped, under-trained, under-prepared, and it's always, and it's obviously it's the work that we do, so it's it's why we're here 
to help meet that need. But the it has always astounded me the extent to which organizations will entrust other people with their most important asset, the other human beings in their organization, without equipping them to do it. We would never do that without customer service. We would never entrust customers without customer service training. We never entrust our finances without financial training, our marketing without marketing skills, right? So why would we entrust people without people skills? Right, exactly. And yet, you know, they're the skills that are the least taught. They're the most undervalued. They're the the ones that are scoffed at, you know, in traditional MBA programs because the focus is always on the technical skills. Um, and yet they're the skills that are the most needed to help people and organizations produce the results they're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I can guarantee no, I can, I think I can with good confidence interval say that no one on this that's listening right now is scoffing at these skills at the human center leadership skills. I think that's why everybody's here. So we're in the right place to, to have the conversation. So, you know, you know, there, this is a, a great book. You talk about so many different things. So I'm going to just pull out a few as we're, we're talking here. You mentioned beliefs in your comments a moment ago, and you distinguish between, uh, you know, behaviors, beliefs, and some of the different aspects of how we show up and do our work. And I want to draw that out in the context of what you said about ego, because, you know, healthy human beings, we should have some kind of ego or, you know, like there's that, but we obviously we mean it in this context of I'm putting myself at the center of the equation and I don't have other people's, I'm not exhibiting other people's best interests at heart and, and all of those things that go with it. What are some of the beliefs that are tripping us up when we're falling into that? Because I think even people who want to be human centered and are, you know, I can find it for myself. I, obviously, I'm a believer in human centered leadership. And at times, my own beliefs can foul me up. So what are some of the, the beliefs that are important that we're paying attention to there? Mm hmm. Yeah. So I think one of the beliefs that gets in the way of helping us put, you know, people first is this idea or belief that trust has to be earned. Right. If you look at how leaders and managers typically role model trust, well, you've got to prove yourself in an organization. You've got to deliver the projects they're looking for. And then and then maybe they want you to deliver something else. that's maybe more of a stretch assignment. And then maybe once you've passed, you know, these different unwritten rules of you know cultural behavior and trust then perhaps you've earned the trust to be able to step into something else and, and perform at a different level and you know i've always thought that that was a very um a very interesting way to go about it because if you if you believed in the person enough to hire them then why don't you believe in them enough and trust in them to do the work that they they profess they could do when they came in the door and I think that's one of the beliefs that, you know, hold us back from um, often putting people first is that trust has to be earned. And instead of earning trust, what if we just gave trust first, right? Stephen Covey talks about that in his book, The Speed of Trust. And we have a lot of research that shows that when organizations are in high trust cultures, their performance exceeds that of organizations where trust has to be earned. But despite all of that research, there are still a lot of organizations and people that operate in that way. You have to earn their trust before they will trust you. And I'm curious from your perspective, as we dive into that a little bit deeper, what that looks like, because I can think of different angles of, of the, the trust and the trust equations and, and so on. 
um, there's my belief in your ability. Like, you know, uh, I brought you in to join the team. You demonstrated credibility. I'm going to lean on that and empower you to do the work. Assuming I, I, as a manager, I've defined the context. We're on the same page about what success looks like. Right. And I'm going to trust in, in my mind to a certain point where I believe you are credible, where I believe you know what you're doing. I'm not going to trust outside of that and put you in a situation necessarily where I don't believe you know what you're doing, but maybe you do, maybe you don't. So I'm curious how you think about this from a practical standpoint. Somebody's listening going, okay, yeah, I want a high trust environment. I want to do what you're talking about, Jennifer. How do I process that? How do I think that through? Mm -hmm. So I think the first thing is to think about where is the belief coming from for you? You know, are you operating from a principle of this person has to earn my trust in order for them to be credible and for me to put them in front of the client, for example? Or are you operating from, I just trust that they know what they're doing. I brought them in, I hired them, or you know, someone hired them, right? They passed some kind of evaluation. So therefore they ergo, they must be credible and they must be trustworthy. And so I'm gonna assign that to them right off the bat and will go in that direction until I'm proved otherwise, or until they prove to me otherwise that I can't trust them. And so then we engage in the, the coaching and the feedback and, and exactly. help them navigate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so I think it, it comes down to where's the belief around that, right? Like you may have something that you're being told like from the organizational cultural rules, but also what are you, what do you hold as true inside yourself? What is that belief that you have around, around this? And did it come from the role modeling and the behavior that you observed in the organization? Or is this something that you're bringing with you from the past, for example, right? Like, where does that actually come from for you? So I think, I think there's some value in thinking through for people. First of all, how do I interact? Like when I meet someone for the first time, just in general, do I trust them or do I distrust them? and go from there. We're talking with Dr. Jennifer Nash. She's the author of Be Human, Lead Human, How to Connect People and Performance. And so, you know, Jennifer, we've been talking about trust and, and the beliefs that we're approaching our teams with and, and how we create that environment. One of the topics that you address in the book that I thought was really important was relationships. And the way that it's the way that you talk about it, you talk about relationships in terms of honoring others, humanity through human connection. And it's one of those, again, it's like, okay, straightforward to an extent definition, but wow, the ramifications and how we implement and how we do that as leaders, I thought is pretty significant. So I wanted to ask you to expand on that a little bit, and then maybe we can dive into some how to's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is the question around like, how am I defining the relationships or? Yeah, let's just start with the concept. So when you talk about honoring others' humanity through human connection, what does that look like? Yeah. So for me, when I think about that statement and the reason why I wrote it in that way is that so often in the workplace, we see each other as one dimensional. We see each other as like the title that we have or the role that we hold or you know leader or manager or individual contributor or <clears throat> in the worst case scenarios headcount assets ft pixels right? on a pixels on a slack channel exactly and so my purpose in stating it that way was to really expose this idea that we are whole human beings 
We may have a certain title or a role at work, but we're more than that, right? We're parents, we're children, we're, you know, spouses, we're, um, we have all these different identities and all of these different skills and talents that we bring with us into the workplace. It's not like we drop those off at the door and then we come in. And so seeing each other in that way tends to change and shift how you think about that person and how you connect with that person. So if, for example, you find out that your colleague has a toddler, right? And you have a toddler. Instantly, you have something that you can connect with that person that isn't work related, that shows you the humanity of that person and not just the totality of the output that they're going to provide to the organization. And so it creates a different way for you to interact. It creates a different way for you to see them as a human being. Um, and it creates a different type of working relationship that has maybe additional common ground to it, if you will. And it gives you a space to start working from with maybe a little bit more respect than maybe it was there before. Yeah. And it's interesting when you think about the history of the workplace. I mean, there's a, you know, that phrase, well, we need to be professional. And I think so often professionalism has had a definition of doing the exact opposite of what you're talking about, right? Of being a quote unquote professional means leaving all of your humanity at the door and being this kind of feelingless automaton, you know, that minimizes friction and, and all those sorts of things. And that's not actually a healthy place to be, but I think for a long time that has been the definition. Yeah, I think it, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I think a lot of that started with Taylor. You know, Taylor was a mechanical engineer, <clears throat> you know, and he wanted to optimize work. You know, he wanted to, you know, make the most profits available for the managers and the organizations. And he wanted employees to, you know, earn the most money that they could. But I think a side effect of that was he took away the autonomy and the voice and the choice and seeing that person as a whole human being with a set of, you know, decisions and values for them and what they felt was right. And I think that has translated still to today where we have organizations that are still operating with, you know, the Taylor principles as opposed to, you know, these more human principles and putting the human element back to the forefront of work where it should be. What in your work with people, uh, so many of the executives, you work with a lot of large companies, Fortune 50s and, and so on, as you have the interactions and discussions that you have, what are some of the challenges that you find that people who, leaders who really truly, I want to rehumanize, I want to bring, help people create a culture where we bring our full selves to work and, and so on. What are some of the challenges that you find even people who want to do this frequently run into in themselves or in their organizations? Yeah, I think there's three. So the first one and the foremost one is that any sign of emotion is weakness, right? There's a there's a there's a sense that if I show my emotion about something, if I'm sad or if I get upset with something, um, that 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 is a sign of weakness. And so that has to be completely erased from the equation because I need to be professional in this in this environment, right? I have to show up as the leader that everyone expects me to be. So I think that first one is emotion. Yeah. So the second thing that I see is that organizations typically are focused on the performance. 
So whatever isn't performance related falls to the wayside. So even if a leader wants to prioritize people and wants to bring that human element to the forefront, the systems and the recognition and the performance evaluation is set up where everything is focused on the, the numbers. And that's the sole thing that drives. And we see that often in other areas too, right? In assessments, in um, you know the ACTs, in places where you're looking at um, technical and, and, and pieces of data and numerical driven results rather than the skills that are harder to quantify and measure like the human and relational skills. So often they aren't valued in the same way. And even if someone is really good at those, what ultimately at the end of the day ends up getting measured and evaluated and rated are the more technical skills. Um, so that's the second thing I see, you know, so in other words, the, the performance culture doesn't always allow for that to shine and come to the forefront. Um, the third item that I see that, you know, sort of gets in the way of people having this human centered leadership focus is um, the the culture itself, you know, the role modeling of the leaders that came before them. And so if status quo is something that the organization is very comfortable with, you know, as you know, anything that is outside of that status quo, the system recognizes as an outlier and it ejects it. And so if someone wants to operate in this way with this with these beliefs and behaviors and actions that don't necessarily fit into the existing culture, um, they tend to find themselves sometimes out of a job because it doesn't work well and it's not accepted and it makes other people a little uncomfortable. So those are the three things that I see, you know, the emotion, um, the, the performance, the evaluation, and, you know, perhaps being a little bit of an outlier in a system that doesn't accept different. So for so many folks listening who might feel that they are in that situation of maybe I am an outlier or maybe there's well-intentioned folks at every level, but you are dealing with systems and change and messiness. And um, there's, a, there's a lot of work to do to fully even understand, I think, what a truly human-centered culture looks like. That also powers performance, as you said. Um, prioritizing people to power performance. I, I really like that uh, way of thinking about it. So somebody's listening, they're like, wow, all right. Yeah, I feel like a bit of an outlier. I really want to do this. I'm really trying to be human-centered. And yes, I am being measured on those results. And um, and my boss or my boss's boss doesn't necessarily think that way. I know I can get a little latitude, but where do you suggest people start on this journey or how to take action in some positive ways towards that goal of really prioritizing people to power performance? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, in the book, I talk about how when someone wants to start this human leadership journey, you know, what what are the tools that they have available to them? And so in the book, I define this five step framework that people can use to start on that journey of human leadership. And in contrast to what people normally think, where like leaders lead other people or managers lead other people, they actually need to start by leading themselves first, because if they're not clear about where they want to go and how they want to get there, they're going to find that other people are going to have challenges following them and believing in them and having that trust, you know, in them as leaders and managers of people. So I think the very first place to start is turning that lens inward and looking at yourself and thinking about 
what are the what is my internal GPS? What is guiding me and what is helping me shape my decisions in the work that I do and in the workplace, in the organization that I choose to deliver that work? Maybe there's a disconnect between my values and what I really hold as important and what I believe in and the organizational culture and values that I'm currently in. And maybe by going through that first part of the process, they realize, yes, this is how I want to lean in and lead going forward. But this organization doesn't allow for that. Maybe I need to consider what are some of my other options if I start looking around and seeing where the other organizations are that do hold these types of values and do align with the, with the things that I find important. You know, I was just reading um, today, there was there was an article on Business Insider around how, um, you know, Gen Z may really be eliminating that middle manager position. And a lot of it is around the fact that they want purposeful work. They want work that aligns with their values and they wanna work for organizations that have a bigger, broader focus, you know, from that ESG kind of perspective as well. So looking at that alignment and, and going through that process and the framework in the book, I think is a good place to start from a tactical and pragmatic perspective on making sure that you're in a place that is actually aligned. I'm curious when I hear the those that I saw, I've seen the, the some of that research around the like, oh, our, our middle manager is going away. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's fascinating to think about it and some of the flat you know, hierarchical types of uh, experiments and empowered experiments and things like that. It's a challenge to do it well, I, I'm, seems to be my observation. And uh, I'm, I'm not that that's the topic of today's show, but I just happened to, yeah, right. I'm curious if you have any insights right. on, um, on more flat empowered type organizations. Are there, you know, one or two secrets that you have observed to doing that effectively that we might keep in mind as people are thinking about that. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I've noticed is that in a flatter organization, the span of responsibility is broader. It, it, by default, it has to be, right? Because there's fewer people to do the work. And so I think you tend to get exposure to some of those things that you would need later on in your career, you get that earlier. And so to the extent that that exposure gives you the experiences that you need to sort of jump over that manager role, if you will, then I think there could be some, some validity to what they're proposing in that article. I think for me, it did bring up a lot of questions around how would we gain the skill sets and those experiences that we need to have in that middle manager space to be effective, you know, at the director and VP and CXO levels. So it, it brought up questions for me, but I think in a flat organization, you're automatically getting exposed to some of that at an earlier stage in your career. So you're ready to move to that next level. And maybe you don't need the manager role in a flatter organization, honestly. It's a conversation for another day. And it sure is. Constantly yeah. intrigued by. Yeah, um, sure is. And, you know, David, I think, too, it brings up the idea that, you know, when we think about leader and we think about the concept and identity of the leader, you know, the role of a leader is really shifting. And I think that the same argument can be made for managers as well. I think the role of a manager has evolved and it has shifted, just like leaders have, to be more coaches and facilitators rather than commanders and controllers and telling people what to do. I think that is where work is going. I think that is where the role of leaders is evolving. Um, and that I do talk about that in the book. 
Yeah, you do. And, you know, it brought up for me uh, a question that I have, uh, we had uh, as a guest earlier this season, Jermaine Hunter, who's the chief diversity officer over at uh, GE Aerospace. And uh, he phrased the, the, you know, asking people about challenges and that you see leaders and managers going through in the evolving workplace. And he phrased it in, in a very powerful way that has stuck with me. He said, you know, on the one hand, so there's a, these two different sets of needs and expectations that are happening in the evolving workplace. He said, one, you've got um, the workforce, and you were mentioning Gen Z and so forth, but you've got the workforce that is desiring more connection, as you were saying, right? The, the humanity, the honoring others' humanity through human connection, the purpose, the empathy, the human emotional connection with their manager, uh, with their leader, with their team, um, and all of that. So in all of the other ways that you had just phrased it as well. And then as well, particularly in larger organizations, you've got an ever increasingly complexity to organizations with distributed time zones, distributed geographies, uh, multiple stakeholders. So as you said, you know, you're not, it's not command and control anymore. The flip side of that is now I'm responsible for achieving results, but I don't have the quote unquote power or authority to do that. And now I'm having to influence all these stakeholders and, and, and feeling that, that sense of complexity and then magnify that across matrix organizations, time zones, so on. And the needs of the workforce with that reality and you get some like with uh, the recent Gallup research that's showing that manager disengagement is at the highest level in the history of their research. Yes, even you higher than so, the pandemic. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and I think because of all, all of these kinds of issues that are emerging. And so then, you know, when you, you're looking at all of that, so anyone listening, if you're feeling that stress, like, I think it's real, it's, it's you're not alone. And it's a, it's a real thing and a real frustration. And so I'm in all of my conversations, whether I'm the guest on a podcast uh, or interviewing a guest like yourself, I'm curious about your perspective on that and that, um, that evolving situation, that evolving reality for leaders and managers and the ways that the role is changing, there's opportunities in it too. But the way that that is changing and some of the, the frustrations or um, turmoil, confusion, I don't know what the right word is that, that people are experiencing. If you have any insights on how people who are experiencing some of those things can start to work through it, perhaps with your framework. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, you're right. The world has changed since COVID and workplaces they're not going back to what they were, right? We sort of opened Pandora's box during COVID by having everyone work remotely and showing organizations that, hey, we can get results and actually we can perform at a higher level working remotely most often than we can when we were in the office. Um, But I think the shifting role of the leader and the manager, you know, the the world, you know, continuing the pace of change, continuing to accelerate and technology continuing to evolve. And, you know, people are still tired, right? They've got a lot on their plates and burnout is, you know, at some of the rates of all time high of burnout and stress and anxiety and, and depression and, you know, mental health and well-being. Those are all very much at the forefront of um, my concern today about what's happening for leaders and managers. 
And so I think, you know, with the framework that I have in my book, I think a couple things come to mind for me is how we can start to mit address and mitigate some of those, those um, massive challenges that leaders and managers are having today. I think first and foremost, being clear about what it is that you want from your work. And if you are in an organization that aligns with that, then that will help alleviate some of that burnout and stress. It'll help it'll help the well-being, it'll help the mental health. If you're in a space that you're not aligned, that will exacerbate it. And so again, going back to that framework and looking to see like, where is my internal GPS? Is it aligned with this organization? And if it isn't, maybe I start need to start looking for something um, where it's a better fit for me. Um, you know, we have, you know, Gen Z and millennials particularly that are talking about how important it is to them that their work has meaning and purpose. And when people don't feel that their work has meaning and purpose, engagement plummets and attrition skyrockets. And so I think there's also an opportunity here for organizations to rethink their whole onboarding process, their whole hiring practice. How are they deciding who comes in and how are they shaping those roles for employees? Like so often organizations will um, fit the role to the person instead of fitting the person to the role. And so I think there there's an opportunity for employees to say, look, here's what I need. This is what I'm looking for. These are the things that I need so that I know I will have purpose and meaning in my work and feel fulfilled. And if this organization can't offer me that with this role that's in front of me, then it's not a best fit for either one of us and I need to move on and look at something else. But I think it's also on employees to say, this is really what I need, right? And this is really what I want. And what I have found is that people haven't thought about that. They have a sense of it, but they're not able to articulate it. And so going through that process in the book of the five steps to leading myself first gives them the language and the verbiage to actually articulate what it is that they're looking for. And then driving that into the primary factors for is this organization a good fit from a values perspective and a culture perspective? And then is this role a good fit from a what would I be doing? What would my impact be? Do I find meaning in that? Is that something I want to be spending my valuable time on? And is it working in a way that works for me, right? Do they want me in the office five days a week? Or are they open to hybrid work? Or do, do I have the flexibility to do what I want to do? And they trust that I will do that. So again, we're going back to the idea of trust. So I think there's different ways to mitigate, you know, some of this burnout and stress. And I think a lot of it starts with employees having agency over what they want and articulating what they want and organizations rethinking how they are going through that onboarding and hiring process and how they are approaching what is the value proposition for them with the employees. Okay. Our guest today has been Dr. Jennifer Nash, the author of be Human, Lead Human, How to Connect People and Performance. And uh, Jennifer, I uh, want to ask you one more question, but before we do, want to uh, tell, if you can tell us where can we connect with you, learn more about your work. Uh, there's a great uh, index uh, and assessment within the book. I don't know if you have a, a digital version or some other resources for us. Where should we go? Yeah, so if people would like to learn more, they can go to my website at drjennifernash.com. That's drjennifernash.com. 
And on the website, there's a whole bunch of resources that are free and complimentary. Um, I have an online version of the Human Leader Index, which there's the paper version in the book. Um, but they can take the version online, which is also found on my website. And there's a complimentary report that they will receive um, if they if they decide to take the index. All right. Thank you for that. So lots of opportunities there. And it's the index is fantastic. So I recommend you take advantage of that. The uh, one of the the framework that uh, one of the frameworks we've been talking about is uh, that you go you have an acronym which we love around here but human so and you you go through hearing understanding mattering appreciating and is for inspiring uh, and so humans and then seeing and so and the, it, which gets at many of the different aspects we've been talking about humanizing people uh, I call it re three dimensionalizing how do we get people back to their three dimensional self and and so on. My final question uh, I want to ask is regarding fatigue and exhaustion in leaders and managers. Uh, I, we mentioned it earlier in terms of the workforce. And as we're thinking about being a human-centered leader, one of the challenges that I'm seeing with our clients, not everyone, but in many cases, is and you read about it in the news, right? But it's compassion fatigue. It's, I don't have the resources internally to bear the emotional burden of all of the stuff and people and all the things. And I think uh, not that anyone's longing to go back to that old archaic definition of professionalism where we left our humanity at the door, but also not knowing how to engage and in, in deal with all of that swirl of things in a in a, an effective way all the time. So I'm curious, as we do this work, if you have any last thoughts on how to help our leaders, managers who are listening today and feeling a little bit of that to find that renewed energy and maybe avoid the, some of the traps of compassion fatigue and so forth as they are leading, prioritizing people to produce results. Yes. So I think that's a great question. And I there's three things that I would be um, offering to people to think about. So the first is actually a tool that I use, you know, as a coach when I'm working with people. And so, you know, I envision if, if people can just envision that are listening, this idea of, you know, holding your arms out in front of you, right, and making a circle with your arms. And thinking about that circle, that space inside there as like this is a basket, right? And it's the basket that you're going to hold open and hold that space for when someone is coming to you and talking about something that, you know, that you're having compassion for, right? So you're holding the space for them. You're holding that ability for them to put what they need to put into that basket that you're holding. And when they're done talking about it and you've worked through it and you've shared that moment with them, for you as the leader or the manager, you know, you can't carry all those baskets, right? As you were saying, like it gets tiring, it's heavy. So as a coach, you know, what I have learned to do is you take that basket and in the moment you're holding it open, but when you have finished the session or you finished speaking with the person and you're moving on, you take that basket and you put a lid on it and you set that down so that you don't have to hold it and you don't have to carry it. That is the first thing I think that would maybe be helpful. So you're open to accepting it, you're holding that space for them, but then when the conversation is over, you're able to close the lid on the basket and you set it down. Um, so metaphorically and figuratively, you know, that could be a way that they they may be thinking about, okay, this is how I can manage this. 
Um, and then this is how I can let it go so that I can move on, you know, and, and move forward in what I need to do. That's yeah. the first thing. I think the second thing is, you know, understanding what helps you recharge and what helps you renew and regenerate. So, you know, for me as a coach and as a consultant, you know, this is super important as well. Like, I cannot constantly be giving to people all day in conversation if I have not taken the time to give to myself first and recharge my meter, you know, get that battery up from red to green. And so understanding what are those things that help you get that battery from red to green? You know, for me, it's spending time in nature. Um, it's spending time by the water. Um, it's spending time, you know, reading a fiction book because I love to read fiction books. Um, it could be, you know, dancing, right? I love to dance. And so that's a great way for me to be present and recharge that battery. Um, and so understanding what it is that helps you regain um, that energy so that you can show up at your desk for other people is one way to also combat that, that compassion fatigue. Excellent. So we've got, I love the basket metaphor. So hold the basket, engage in the, the conversation, and then put the lid and set it to the side. It's there when we need to pick it back up, but it's not something we have to carry around and then filling your tank. All right. A couple of final practical ways that you can help be the leader you'd want your boss to be as you prioritize people to power performance. Again, our guest today has been Jennifer Nash, Dr. Jennifer Nash. The book is Be Human, Lead Human, How to Connect People and Performance. Jennifer, thanks so much for being a guest with us today. It's my honor, David. Thank you so much for having me. All right, listeners. We are going to take a couple weeks off at the end of the year here, if you're listening in real time. So we'll take a couple weeks over the holiday and we will see you again in 2024. I almost said 2025, I almost skipped the whole year there. So no, we'll do 2024 first. We'll see you then. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>